0: Welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read anytime. Quipster.net is where to go, q-w-i-p-s-t-e-r.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast. It covers more recent movies. You can find the link to that at my website. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Go to quipster.net and check it out. If you like this show, I hope you'll enjoy that show as well today i'm going to be getting into the final part of this four-part series looking at the jaws films two of them from the 1970s two of them from the 1980s and this will be the second of the two from the 80s jaws the revenge from 1987. it's a pg-13 rated film the first of the jaws films to be pg-13 even though they all should qualify, it just happens to be the only one that was made after PG-13 was instituted, it does have violence, sexuality, and language. The runtime is one hour and 30 minutes, making it the shortest of all of the Jaws films. Lorraine Gary is the main star. Lance Guest, Mario Van Peebles, Michael Caine, Karen Young, Judith Barcy, and Lydon Whitfield are in the film. The director this time out is Joseph Sargent, and the screenplay credited to Michael de Guzman. Now, if you listen to my episode on Jaws 3D, you know that that film began as a National Lampoon project. They were trying to make that third Jaws film this tongue-in-cheek comedy named Jaws 3 People Zero. Well, the idea came around again here for a humorous effort for their fourth entry. This time, this would not be related to the National Lampoon effort or the prior Jaws entries at all. It would have a killer shark as the antagonist but it was meant to be a comedy universal's motion picture chair frank price he developed this jaws comedy it would be surrounding the surf punk culture in malibu steve de was drafting a script for that but in 1986 universal pictures experienced a very bad run of films without a single movie among the top money earners of the year. Their highest grossing films for that year were Out of Africa and Legal Eagles, but those were both so expensive to produce that they were not really profitable. And other high-budget comedies that they made that year, Howard the Duck, Brighton Beach Memoirs, and Brazil, they were major busts at the box office. So MCA president Sid Sheinberg, he knew that Universal needed a hit and in a hurry, but it wouldn't be by throwing away their most lucrative franchise by making a pricey comedy unrelated to the first film. On top of this, Scheinberg did not care for DeJarnett's script because it didn't have a part for his wife, Lorraine Gary, who had not been working in the many years after appearing in the first two Jaws films. After seeing 20th Century Fox score big with their action sci-fi horror blockbuster called Aliens, Scheinberg felt that his wife's character, Ellen Brody, could be the next Ellen Ripley, pitting her against this unstoppable killing machine of her own in the next Jaws film. If they did Jaws right, if they brought terror with the same kind of emotional underpinning for the heroine, this could be the cash bonanza that they needed, and it might make Lorraine Gary a sought-after actress again, something Scheinberg definitely wanted to do. So Universal, they rushed To put the film into production, they wanted it for a summer release just like the other Jaws films. They scheduled about nine months from the idea to its release instead of the typical two years that are normally allotted to major film releases – Scheinberg was personally taking hold of this new Jaws film. He cut through many of the hurdles that tended to slow down a movie's schedule, including putting together the shark builders and the visual effects crew before a script was even in development or a director attached at a substantial pre-production cost. He read all the revisions and attended the planning meetings to make sure everything was on course to hit their deadline throughout the production. When Sheinberg first told his wife, Lorraine Gary, about his plans, she thought her husband must be joking. Gary had not worked as an actress since Steven Spielberg's 1941 back in 1979. In fact, she had stopped trying at all once the phone no longer rang for parts for her to play. You would think that with her husband running one of the largest movie studios in Hollywood that she would be able to easily score roles, but it turned out to be a handicap because directors did not want to hire her on their films, either because they didn't like Scheinberg personally or because they thought that they would get into trouble very easily with her husband if there was ever a disagreement between them and Gary on how she should portray her role. During the phone call from Scheinberg in October of 1986, Joseph Sargent, he's known for Directing a lot of dramas, he also directed The uh, Taking of Pelham 123, among many other fine films. Scheinberg asked him, basically, if he was interested, but he questioned whether he was the guy for the job of a killer shark blockbuster. Scheinberg insisted that this new Jaws should have a more human element to it. When audiences genuinely care about the characters, they find horror films much more terrifying. Sargent had a reputation of putting characters above conceptual elements and finding the humanity in his stories. So, in Scheinberg's mind, Sargent was the guy who could get this franchise back to what made the original so special. And sweetening the deal, Scheinberg offered something Sargent that he could not refuse, total control as the producer. He could produce his own film his way, on top of being the director. Now, Sargent just had to deliver a movie that didn't have a story... And he had to cast it within 10 months, half the time of a typical film. He immediately hired a TV writer named Michael de Guzman to script. Sargent and de Guzman got to work. They made a conscious decision to connect their story to the first film only. They ignored the other two sequels that came before it. In their minds, this was going to be the actual sequel to Jaws. But given no guidance on what the studio wanted, other than Ellen Brody was the protagonist, they planned to have... Martin Brody die at the beginning, a moving funeral after that, and then the rest of the story would focus on Ellen Brody getting revenge on the shark that killed her husband. After turning in their draft, Scheinberg loved that angle, and the execs at Universal felt that they really had something special going. Scheinberg was so enamored of this story, he sent a copy to Steven Spielberg, who replied that he had only gotten 18 pages in, but he could read no more because it brought back too many memories. He wished Joseph Sargent well. He knew from experience that a Jaws shoot was the most difficult of all shoots. Despite vowing to never return, Universal hoped that Roy Scheider would come back if his character died at the beginning of the film. But Scheider was really not interested. Universal asked him, name his price. Scheider said, okay, a million dollars. For only nine days work, Universal thought that was outrageous. But they could not negotiate him down from that million. So they wrote out Martin Brody as having died of a heart attack years before from living in continual fear of sharks. The death at the beginning of the film changed the focus to the younger Brody son, Sean. He's now the deputy for the Amity Police. Sean's funeral scene was the one that was meant for Martin. It originally had a phone call of condolences from Matt Hooper bringing back Richard Dreyfuss, whether his voice or whether on the screen, and a visit from Larry Vaughn from Jaws. However, Dreyfuss had absolutely no interest, just like Scheider did, in coming back for another Jaws, and Murray Hamilton had just died of lung cancer, so he was not going to be available. Amity community bit players from Jaws, like Mrs. Kintner and Mrs. Taft, they would appear, De Guzman had a somewhat larger problem, though, in explaining why the Brody family were going to be the targets of so many attacks from great white sharks. Sargent thought that they could play with the mythos a little bit, maybe even get a little mystical, that this new shark was angry for Chief Brody taking out two of their own and would be carrying out a vendetta against the Brody family, despite the scientist in Jaws 2 telling a paranoid Martin Brody that sharks don't take things personally— The shark would be kind of a metaphor here about the deadly nature of fear and obsession and keeping people from being able to move on with their lives and how such things can consume us and our families into stagnation. Despite Michael de Guzman's attempt to complete a script in the five weeks allotted, it was still incomplete by the time they were scheduled to roll film. And revisions would have to be handed down nearly every day that changed some facet to accommodate shifts in the budget or the availability of the talent that they had on any given day given an initial 15 million dollars budget Sargent used his carte blanche mandate to set most of his film in the bahamas he wanted to spend time in paradise if he could choose any place in the world hey why not the bahamas the familiar stomping grounds of edgerton on martha's vineyard they would provide the setting for the opening scenes Due to unforeseen delays throughout the shoot, the release date of July 1st of 1987, it had to move. They started to actually feel that the release date would actually move well past July. It might go into August, but they managed to rush as fast as they could to pull together something that they could release for July 17th for its release date. Although this is the fourth in the series, it does not carry the title of Jaws 4, and that was because there was a deliberate attempt here to continue the series by ignoring Jaws 3D altogether. And that's why Sean, who is deathly afraid of the water in Jaws 3, he gets eaten here for going in the water. He doesn't have his phobia. While his brother Mike, who we learned was a construction engineer in Jaws 3, now he's actually a marine biologist. It also really doesn't hitch anything onto Jaws 2, but it doesn't really contradict it too much altogether. It opts to make references only to the first film. The first proposed title was Jaws 1987. that later got shortened to Jaws 87. It was scheduled to come out on the 4th of July weekend, and of course, 1987. Eventually, they changed the title to Jaws the Revenge, and that was in an attempt to continue the series with chapter names instead of numbers. So that going forward... All of the Jaws films would not necessarily be continuations of the previous film. They would be much more episodic. New characters, new adventures, so to speak. Michael Kane here, he plays Hoagie, the air taxi pilot. He takes the remaining Brody family to Nassau, where the waters are said to be too warm for the liking of great white sharks. The setting is winter, though. That makes it the coldest time of the year for the waters. And that's where Mike Brody works as a marine biologist, While in a new and beautiful place, Ellen lets her guard down and she begins this flirtatious relationship with Hoagie. Soon, they have an unexpected visitor in the ocean, of course, that seems to only have a taste for the Brody family. Michael Caine says he took up Jaws the Revenge because his films were too boring for his 13-year-old daughter. This would be the first movie that he made that she and her friends would enjoy. Of course, the $1.5 million that he received to do the film, that's two and a half times Gary's paycheck, While enjoying this Bahamian vacation, that might be much more of the real answer. The one downside for Michael Caine was that he missed being in Hollywood to accept his first ever Oscar. He got Best Supporting Actor for Hannah and Her Sisters because there was a lot of bad weather and that caused multiple delays because of not only the weather but malfunctioning mechanical sharks. Because they were in danger of not making their goal of their July release, They had to finish their shoot in a tank for underwater sequences with water dyed a special shade of blue to match the ocean Bahamian waters. That was all done at Universal Studios, including a backlot recreation of the Nassau village for additional scenes. These delays also caused Michael Caine to be unavailable for his next scheduled movie, and that was switching channels. His part would eventually get recast with Burt Reynolds because they could not wait any longer. Now, while promoting the film, Michael Caine Called Jaws 2 and 3 so awful, he was rooting for the shark for those films, and he thought, you know, this was a chance to redeem the franchise. He did not realize until later that most fans of the series considered Jaws the Revenge to be the worst of them all. And once he found out that Jaws the Revenge was even more critically panned than the other sequels, Kane glibly responded that though it may be terrible, and he never did watch it, the house that he built with the money he received is terrific. He also said that he would always have a fondness for his time making Jaws the Revenge because of not only that house, but his Oscar win and a great vacation. Mario Van Peebles, he initially turned down the role of Jake, the assistant to Michael Brody. He had been turned off by Jaws 3D, and he thought this was just going to be more of the same. But he did read the script, and it caused him to change his mind, because the character that they wanted him to play was entirely different than anything he had played before. And just as Sargent had carte blanche to make Jaws the Revenge his way, Sargent extended the same courtesy to Van Peebles. Van Peebles created the Jamaican-accented Jake and his personality, including pretty much all of his dialogue. Henry Miller, he took over for Joel Alves in constructing these new sharks, about seven different variations of the shark in total, including four that were about 23 feet long, and that required the work of about 85 craftspeople and technicians to put together and manipulate. And one of the sharks used in the underwater shots, it needed a self-propelled prop, and it was created by altering the five-foot mechanized whale that was created by Industrial Light and Magic for Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. To promote the film, as with Jaws 2, Hank Searles wrote a novelization based on one of the early scripts. And once again, when you read some of these novelizations based on early scripts, it usually will reveal several subplots that were written out of the final draft. And that's certainly the case for Jaws The Revenge. I think the biggest among all of the reveals, if you read the novelization of where they wanted to go with the movie, that there was an actual reason beyond just simple revenge for the shark targeting the Brodies. In the novelization, based on that early script, the shark is actually under the control of this Haitian witch doctor named Papa Jacques. Jacques, in the story, becomes Michael Brody's sworn enemy after he gets called out as a con artist by Mike Brody for exploiting the Bahamians. So he puts a curse on the Brody family by controlling this shark to attack them whenever they go in the ocean and to show Mike how legit His powers truly are. In the end, when the shark is killed, Papa Jacques dies with it, as he and the shark were one and the same. That definitely would make sense for Jaws the Revenge. It would be a revenge story, Papa Jacques's revenge story, instead of just some shark who we have to presume is somehow friends or cousins or somehow related to the other sharks that we've seen in the prior movies. Now, there were other subplots, too, that were cut out. Hoagie had a money laundering and drug running backstory that put his life in constant danger from vicious gangsters. Hoagie later gets revealed as actually a good guy. He's an undercover DEA agent who's trying to take down this drug lord who's responsible for his daughter's death. And we also learn that the shark is indeed the offspring of the sharks from Jaws and Jaws 2, born as she was electrocuted during Jaws 2, if you can believe that. So even with these subplots, maybe it would not have made such a great movie after all. Now, five days following the release of the film into theaters in July 17th of 1987, Universal decided to reshoot the ending in the tank at the Universal backlot because audiences hated Mario Van Peeble's character, Jake, dying in the mouth of the shark. So instead, he is shown to miraculously survive that complete mauling in the mouth of the shark. And this new ending was specifically for foreign prints, but it also made its way to television showings as well as home video releases. They tended to think that this made for a better film experience for most people. They also added an introductory voiceover narration and had the the narrator talking about fate or circumstances that was driving the shark's behavior. And there are also two different endings that were done for the shark. In the theatrical version, the shark is gored by the sailboat's bowsprit and then bleeds out and then sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And this ending was done because Sid Sheinberg mandated that Joseph Sargent have the shark die in a manner that is completely different from the other films. And this was the best he could think of. In home video releases, though, the shark inexplicably explodes upon getting impaled, which ironically happens in the first film. So not exactly sure why the shark explodes or why they decided that would be more exciting, but apparently they thought that the ending that was originally done for the theatrical release was just kind of boring for some of the viewers and they needed an explosion. The final cost of Jaws The Revenge was $23 million. So it went bit over its budget, not including advertising or promotional costs either. Despite debuting at number three in its first week of release, word of mouth was not kind to the film, and it fell out of the top ten by week three. And all told, it grossed about $20 million in the United States. Not a very big amount, but it did score another $31 million worldwide, and that brought its grand total to $51 million. So... Guess it didn't really lose any money, didn't really make that much money either. But despite Sid Scheinberg trying to recharge his wife's acting career, Jaws the Revenge it did mark Lorraine Gary's final acting credit. It really did backfire for that intent. And it would also mark the end of Joseph Sargent as a director of big screen films, as well as for Michael de Guzman as a screenwriter of big screen films. And it also would mark the end of Jaws as a big screen franchise, too. Now, few but those nostalgic for the 1980s schlock champion it today. It holds a rare 0% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and it also received seven Razzie Award nominations, those Golden Raspberries, Worst Picture, Worst Actress for Lorraine Gary, Worst Supporting Actor for Michael Caine, Worst Director for Joseph Sargent, Worst Screenplay, Worst Visual Effects, which it actually won, and Bruce the Shark for Worst Actor. And despite the drubbing by the Razzies, Razzie's co-founder, John Wilson. He put Jaws of Revenge prominently in his book, describing the hundred most enjoyably bad movies ever made. So, despite being a bad movie, it's still liked by people who like bad movies. Joseph Sargent would wonder years later, though, how grown men with years of professional training could get involved with something so idiotic. Looking back in hindsight, he thought all of these ideas that he had for the film were good, but now looks over it and realizes, boy, they were way in over their head, and they had no idea that they were making a real stinker. He Years later, that the issue was that there was such a push for a fresh approach with Jaws the Revenge and such a need to finish the production at twice the speed that nobody really wanted to put the brakes on by scrutinizing or trying to overthink the impossible. Now, anybody who's ever heard of Jaws the Revenge knows that it is considered one of the worst films of the 1980s, maybe one of the worst films ever made. So reviewing it here as far as what I think about it might seem a bit unnecessary, but I thought I'd take a different approach here because a negative review for Jaws The Revenge is a given. So I will try to do something different here and come up with 10 positive things to say about this sequel that ended the Jaws franchise once and for all. And we'll see if I can scrape up that many. So without further ado, here are the 10 quote unquote good things about Jaws The Revenge. Number one, it ignores the equally awful Jaws 3. I mean, I cannot decide which of these films I like less. Jaws 3 was probably, you know, not quite as mind-numbingly stupid in its plot, but it also has a really shoddy factor that Jaws The Revenge seems much more professional, even though it's just a dumber film. But because, you know, both films don't necessarily agree with one another, instead of having to see Jaws 3 before you watch Jaws The Revenge, now you have the option of ignoring at least one of these awful movies. If you want to get to two different endings for the series, it's kind of like choose your own adventure. But, you know, the best available option is to ignore both films, I suppose. Two, it does have the shortest running time of all of the Jaws films. Now, Jaws 2 is not musty entertainment, but at two hours, it's burdened by stretching out its thin material to the breaking point. Jaws 3 is about 20 minutes shorter than Jaws 2, but it contains about as much filler as Jaws 2. But here, Jaws the Revenge, it's the worst of the films in the minds of many, but the creators do show some mercy here by not assaulting our intelligence for longer than they had to. 90 minutes is kind of the the typical runtime for a movie that gets chopped down to try to get more screen showings. Number three. It is the funniest of all of the Jaws films. Although the humor here is completely unintentional, I do think Jaws the Revenge, if you're having a few beers watching along with it, or maybe not, it's still funny on its own, the laughter quotient rivals some of the best comedies ever made for its period. Four, you will learn things about sharks that a lifetime of study of sharks would never ever reveal. Did you know? That sharks carry out personal vendettas against human families? Well, you will see that here. Did you also know that they can form psychic links with these humans and humans could form them right back? Did you know that they, you know, even though sharks typically don't go more than 25 miles an hour, maybe 35 if they have a short burst, that they could follow an airplane traveling hundreds of miles at high speeds? and find their destination. Well, you will see that here. Did you know that sharks like to growl while attacking, despite their lack of vocal cords? Somehow they roar while in the ocean, or at least coming out of the ocean through the top of the water. Did you know that sharks could glide for hundreds of feet with most of their bodies above the water and all of this and more is learned throughout the course of this highly educational film i mean the camera never lies certainly this kind of footage should definitely at least cause many people who are shark experts to have mouths agape for one reason or another now reason five jaws is good it shows that the suspense of the jaws films was not all about the john williams score despite utilizing the same score as steven spielberg's original jaws This one cannot even muster one hundredth of the amount of tension or intrigue or fright as the original Jaws. The soundtrack does, however, feature a few late 1980s pop tunes that rank very high on the scare factor. If you don't think that the Jets' You Got It All is nausea-inducing, and by the way, I happen to have owned (laughs) during the late 1980s a couple of Jets albums. I actually thought that they were quite good at the time, but You Got It All was not one of the ones I liked. Wait till you see the slow, sensual, close dancing of Michael Caine and Lorraine Gary that accompanies that song. That's a lot to take in. Number six, it will remind you of how great the first Jaws is. And sure, we all know how entertaining Spielberg's original is, but the constant flashbacks and the allusions to the first film can only make everyone viewing this travesty think that Jaws was the greatest film ever made just by the sheer comparison. Interestingly, some of the flashbacks occur to characters that were not even there to witness them. You'll have the urge during this film to just stop Jaws the Revenge altogether in order to rewatch Jaws if you don't stop halfway outright just to end the pain. Number seven, it eventually ends. Now, very few viewers probably stuck around to see the final credits, but painful as they are to get to. I have, and yes, if you're wondering, there are people who want to take the credit for making this film. Number, well, I think I've kind of ended my list here. Okay, this was only 7 out of 10, but anybody who knows and who has seen this fiasco has to realize that coming up with 10 positive things to say, even though they're not really positive, I suppose is about downright impossible, and so you can watch this tripe only if you mean to laugh at how astonishingly bad it all is. You'll love the psychic connections, the spiritual mumbo-jumbo, Mario Van Peebles' terrible faux Rasta accent, man, and Michael Caine really cashing his check here, and about the fakest shark action ever put to celluloid. I mean, this one is so bad, it's kind of like a car wreck. You can't avert your eyes from it, no matter how horrific it is to take in, and just as Jaws made people everywhere afraid to go back into the water, Jaws the Revenge proved to be such a stinker of such magnitude. They were actually afraid to return to the theater for another Jaws excursion, and that's why we do not have a Jaws 5 or even a Jaws remake, even though I guess kind of it got remade by a hundred different Jaws rip-offs. And that's why I cannot give Jaws the Revenge more than one star. One star out of four. You know, this movie has a lot of talent on board. But the rushed production and the really insanely idiotic idea of a shark trying to get revenge on a family and traveling all over the world to get to this family who don't have the common sense to just move their house to someplace that's not right on the shore... Well, it's kind of insulting to the intelligence, I guess, the more you think about it. So one star is the best I can give to anybody who's wanting to take in Jaws 4 for any other reason than to laugh at it. I cannot in good conscience recommend it to anybody who I don't know is going to watch it for that purpose. So one star out of four for Jaws the Revenge. Well, we won't end kind of the underwater menace here because next week we're going to start off a brand new trilogy and the first film I'm going to be talking about well we're going to go dip back to the 1970s yet again as we did with the King Kong films and the Jaws films for the first of a three-part series the first film I'm going to be talking about is called Piranha that was directed by Joe Dante a Roger Corman production you know Steven Spielberg called it the best of the Jaws rip-offs and you will find out the reasons why when I cover 1978's Piranha. Definitely much more of an intentionally funny film and much more successful than a lot of these Jaws sequels tended to be. So check out Piranha from 1978 for next week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this retrospective look at the Jaws films. I know that there's a huge drop-off between the first one and the sequels really, even though I do think Jaws 2 is respectable enough to sit through. If you have your own thoughts on Jaws the Revenge, if you think that it deserves more than one star, certainly you can write to me with the reasons why. My contact information is at my website, that's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, Instagram, all of that. Any way that you want to get in touch with me is perfectly fine by me. And until next time, thank you so much for joining me on this trip around the world with a shark in tow, waiting to get its teeth in our butts. Somehow it will follow us everywhere around the world in 80s movies.